This is an ABC podcast. Hello, everybody. Hello, Duluth. In late September, Donald Trump held a rally at an airport in Duluth, Minnesota, just south of the Canadian border. 34 days from now, we're going to win Minnesota. We're going to go and win four more beautiful years in the White House and do more... It was raining. The temperature was close to freezing and a stiff wind blew across the airport tarmac and into Air Force One, parked behind the president's stage. The president threw hats into the crowd. I brought those hats out here because Minnesota's a little on the windy side. Trump spoke for 45 minutes to the tightly packed crowd. Really enjoyed last night's debate with Sleepy Joe. And finished with his traditional five promises. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you, Minnesota. Go out and vote. He danced around the stage to the Village People's Song YMCA for a bit and then got back on the plane. On board, there was a problem. Hope Hicks, one of Trump's closest advisers, had developed a blocked nose and a cough. There was concern that she might have COVID-19. She was sent to the back of the plane. Trump went to sleep. The following day, Hope Hicks tested positive for the virus. Trump heard about this, but nevertheless flew to a fundraiser in New Jersey. He shook hands. He had conversations. He interacted with more than 100 people. When he got home, he called in to his Fox News friend Sean Hannity's TV show. By the way, some news broke earlier this evening. Uh, Hope Hicks, who's worked for you for a long time, has tested positive for uh, coronavirus. Uh, do you have any update on her? And So this... she did test positive. I just heard about this. She tested positive. And I just went out with a test. I'll see what, you know, because we spent a lot of time and the First Lady just went out with a test also. Actually, he and the First Lady had already tested positive. The following morning, the President was short of breath, tired and had a fever. He flew by helicopter to Walter Reed National Military Medical Centre. Across the road from the hospital... Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of Trump's chief medical advisers, watched through the window of his office as the president's helicopter landed. He was unsurprised that the virus that had killed more than 200,000 Americans had finally reached the president. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is America If You're Listening, a podcast about how Donald Trump changed the United States and the world. Today... How the president who promised to make America great again spent more effort fighting Fauci and the mechanisms meant to protect Americans from a virus than he spent fighting the virus itself. In 1981, Dr. Anthony Fauci was 40 years old and an up-and-comer, working as a US government medical researcher. One summer day, he sat down to read a pamphlet which gives you heads up on diseases or patterns of disease like a flu is coming or a little outbreak of this. It was part of his job, a normal thing he did each week, but on this day he noticed something strange. Five men from Los Angeles who presented with a very unusual kind of pneumonia that you only see in people who have dramatically suppressed immune systems. And I looked at it and said, wow, five gay men. Why all gay men? It jumped out at him as odd, but maybe just a coincidence. 
A month later, he sat down to read the same regular pamphlet. And this time, there were 26 cases in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. The thing that blew me away is that all of them were gay men. And I said, whoa, something is going on here that's really bad. And just from reading these two reports, Fauci dropped everything. I decided I was going to stop what I had been doing rather successfully for the previous nine or ten years and devote myself completely to studying what I felt would be an enormously difficult disease. This strange and mysterious disease weaving its way through America turned out to be HIV-AIDS. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome is a terrifying and mysterious disease, and it's killing a lot of people. It ravaged the US, killing 700,000 people, primarily black and Latino, gay and bisexual men. There is no cure, and it is often fatal. In just a few years, Fauci became the world's leading expert in the disease and the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He demanded billions of dollars in funding to fight HIV and brought gay activists on board to help. Fauci became a hero to many in the gay community. By 1988, presidential candidate George H.W. Bush was so impressed with Fauci's work that he talked about him at the presidential debate. Who are the heroes who are there in American life today? I think a Dr. Fauci. Fauci's work during the AIDS epidemic made him one of the most respected doctors in America and its top expert in infectious diseases, which meant that any time a new one popped up, he was the guy to call. The SARS situation, the H1N1, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, Ebola virus. But the big one was coming. On the 15th of January this year, a 35-year-old man flew into Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. It had been a long flight, and he was tired. He was keen to get home and get some rest. He got a rideshare car home, where he started feeling sick. Cough, a fever, he thought it was a cold. But the man had been in Wuhan, China, and he'd been watching the news. 27 people fell ill to a strain of viral pneumonia. Among them, seven are in severe condition. So he went to get a test. There is now a report from the Center for Disease Control that they have the first U.S. case of that coronavirus uh, of a couple... Oh, it's in Seattle. I'm just getting word in my ear. This man was the first confirmed case of coronavirus in America. He was America's patient zero. On the last day of January, America reached a crucial point. They had seven cases of COVID-19, all connected to China. The president, Donald Trump, was presented with a choice. Fauci and other top advisers went into the Oval Office to meet him and said it was probably time to stop flights coming in from China. Trump agreed. When we went in and said, we probably should be doing that, and the answer was yes. Trump would later insist it was his idea. Whoever's idea it was, it was an essential step. Trump knew it would cause economic problems, but he had bought the US some time. The shutdown of travel from China slowed the number of new cases arriving in America. It was a good first step. The second step is where things started to unravel. As February began, every other developed country did what you're supposed to do if an infectious disease is starting to spread around the world. Test people isolate the people who test positive, and trace their contacts. 
You achieve this by making sure you have a working test for the virus and can get it to as many people as possible. South Korea has created so-called drive-through testing facilities. Clearly New South Wales Health is doing a huge amount of work to track and control the, the outbreak. The World Health Organization had developed a test that had been proven to work. They offered it to the US, but the Centers for Disease Control decided to make their own. It didn't work. The tests were faulty. A month after flights were stopped from China, they thought there were only 16 cases in America. By the time they realised that they might be missing some, there were around 28,000 people walking around America with COVID-19. The virus had escaped and the CDC had completely missed it. How did this happen? Everyone in the world used to look to the CDC as the experts in disease control, but here they were, walking around blind. The head of the CDC was Dr Robert Redfield, a conservative Republican AIDS researcher with a chin-strap beard who Trump had appointed to the job in 2018. He had never been involved in government bureaucracy before or managed a large group of people. He was now in charge of 22,000 people at the CDC. One of them was Anthony Fauci. And in March, both men were hauled in front of Congress to explain themselves. The committee will come to order. I thank all of our... They were there to be questioned about the government's response to COVID-19. The gentle lady from Florida, Ms Wasserman Schultz, is recognised for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. The most brutal questioning came from Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Basically, you seem to be saying, because you can't name anyone specifically, that there's no one specifically in charge that we can count on to make sure that people who need to be tested, healthcare workers or anyone else, there's not one person that can ensure that these tests can be administered. Yes or no? Redfield sat there silently. He had been asked this question a number of times and couldn't bring himself to admit that a catastrophe had happened on his watch and he didn't know how to fix it. He turned to his right and looked at Anthony Fauci with pleading eyes. Fauci filled the silence. Uh, My colleague is looking at me to answer. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go, Fauci said. He had realised in the last few days that a catastrophe was coming. The forest fire had broken the containment lines. In that moment, he decided that he was going to do something no one else in the Trump administration had done to that point. Tell the truth. Here we go. The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And a that, failing, yes. It, it is a failing. Fauci was admitting that the US government was unable to do the number of tests you needed to do to control a pandemic. The okay. idea of anybody getting it easily, the way people in other countries are doing it, we're not set up for that. Do I think we should be? Yes, but we're not. Okay, that's really disturbing and I appreciate the information. Fauci had admitted that the US government was unable to figure out where the virus was, how many people had it, or how bad it was going to get. Up until this point, the message from Trump was that the virus was very much under control. The virus will not have a chance against us. Fauci had now made it clear that the testing regime had failed and the virus was in no way under control. This was awkward, given that Trump and Fauci were at the time appearing together every day at the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings. At the next one, Trump was asked about what his advisor had said. 
Dr. Fauci said earlier this week that the lag in testing was, in fact, a failing. Do you take responsibility for that? No, I don't take responsibility at all. Trump said nobody could have predicted what happened. We have an invisible enemy. We have a problem that a month ago nobody ever thought about. Trump wanted everyone to think that this was just a random mistake. It could have happened to anyone, anywhere. But Fauci had thought about what to do in a pandemic his whole career. Here he is back in 2005. Go in, isolate those cases, treat the patient as well as the contacts of the patient and start vaccinating people in that region. Kind of getting the spark or the initial lighting of a, of a forest fire and trying to put it out. However, once it starts to spread outside of the community, and unfortunately that's a very big risk in this era of jet travel, once it gets out of the contained area, then it's going to be very, very difficult to put the little fires out. Then that's when you get a pandemic. In 2005, President George W. Bush had thought about it when bird flu was a worry. But if we wait for a pandemic to appear, it will be too late to prepare. And then Barack Obama thought about it when Ebola struck. There may and likely will come a time in which we have both an airborne disease that is deadly. So people had thought about it. But what did they do about it? Bush and Obama set up infrastructure inside the federal government, which was supposed to swing into action quickly if a pandemic was ever detected. But Donald Trump was elected on a platform of draining the swamp, getting rid of all the old ways of doing things and starting new. And that meant a new way of running the government. How do you know when to fire someone? When it's not happening, when what do you mean? it doesn't get done. Anthony Fauci kept his job as Trump purged the ranks, but his bosses regularly got the axe. Often they were replaced by people who actually had no experience in what they were doing. And then Trump started cutting specific parts of the government meant to deal with pandemics. Obama set up a specific office in the White House for that purpose. Trump shut it down. Because anything set up by Obama must be a bad idea. Some of the people we cut, they haven't been used for many, many years. And he cut the budget of the CDC itself, including their monitoring staff in China. I'm a business person. I don't like having thousands of people around when you don't need them. When we need them, we can get them back very quickly. There were people and plans in place for what to do if this happened. Billions of dollars had been spent preparing for it. Trump and the people he had installed around him failed to make use of all that planning. The testing was the first failure. Robert Redfield would eventually admit that they missed 90% of the cases across America. Our best estimate right now is that for every case that was reported, there actually were 10 other infections. As cases began to spike, another part of the plan set up by previous presidents failed. They couldn't provide enough masks to make sure the virus didn't spread in hospitals. How many face masks do we have? Uh, we currently have 30 million N95 respirators in the strategic national stock. How many do we need? Uh, Dr. Cadlick mentioned to the Senate this morning needing approximately 300 million for healthcare workers. The national stockpile set up by President Bush had been depleted and not refilled. Fauci was forced to mislead the public on national television to stop people from panic buying masks. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no. closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. 
Fauci was trying to make sure healthcare workers wouldn't all catch the virus from their patients. Thousands of them did anyway. 1,700 of them have died of COVID-19 this year. As warnings began that the virus was spinning out of control in America, Trump started lying. He had seen what happened when bad news about the virus was reported. The stock market freaked out. He'd also started to see what happened when his response to the virus was criticised. His poll numbers slipped. He became determined to make sure only good news got out about the virus. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Trump alleged that concerns about the spread of the virus were part of a political plot against him. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. Trump would later tell journalist Bob Woodward that he deliberately misled the public about how dangerous the virus was. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. When it became clear that a panic was going to happen whether Trump liked it or not, he started to pretend that the problem had been solved with an amazing drug called... Hydroxychloroquine. It's a drug used to treat malaria. Trump had the impression it might work for COVID-19 too. But if not, who cares? The nice part is it's been around for a long time. So we know that if it if, if things don't go as uh, planned, it's not going to kill anybody. As Trump made this speech, Fauci stood next to him. When it was Fauci's turn to talk, he stood at the lectern and Trump watched as the doctor made it clear that what the president was saying was not based on any science. Are you going to use a drug that someone says from an anecdotal standpoint, not completely proven, but might have some effect? Fauci fact-checked him live on national TV. My job is to ultimately prove, without a doubt, that a drug is not only safe, but that it actually works. Later, he stated it more forcefully. Hydroxychloroquine is not effective in the treatment of coronavirus disease or COVID-19. But it was too late. Around the world, Trump's supporters said that this was the solution which would defeat the virus. That studies show hydroxychloroquine, given early, saves lives. And that the only reason it wasn't being widely prescribed was because doctors didn't want Trump to be right. So what is the story? Demonise Trump and demonise hydroxychloroquine. But it wasn't the only half-baked therapy Trump suggested could cure the virus. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. Or maybe bleach might be the answer. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? When Trump got COVID-19 in October, he was not given any of these treatments to fix it. Despite the fumbling from the federal government, people were social distancing. State governments had told people to stay inside. Trump had even urged people who were sick or vulnerable to dying of the virus to stay home from work. And while nearly 2,000 people were still dying every day, the number had stopped going up. There was a feeling in the air that the worst was behind them. 
Hi, Kristen. It's uh, Matt Bevan here from the ABC in Australia. How's it going? It's going well. How are you, Matt? Kristen Urquiza's dad, Mark, is from Phoenix, Arizona, in the southwest of America. My dad was a lover of nature. He was also a huge promoter of friends and family coming together to enjoy life. He loved sports. Uh, he loved politics, and he um, was an avid karaoke singer, although he was also terrible at it, but that didn't stop him. <laughs> For weeks, Mark and everyone in Phoenix had been told to stay home. Businesses had been shut. Then in May, the president arrived and offered a ray of hope. He toured a mask facility and had long meetings with the governor. Trump declared that the problem had been solved. Thanks to the profound commitment of our citizens, we've flattened the curve and countless American lives have been saved. The president spoke to the assembled mask factory workers without wearing a mask. It's a reopening of our country. Who would have ever thought we were going to be saying that? Kristen's dad watched on in relief as President Trump and the governor opened the state up. It was soon after that that the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, announced a new executive order that required everything to open up um, as if everything was normal. Kristen's dad, Mark, was a big fan of President Trump. I think the reason why he was interested in him was that he was looking for somebody different, a businessman. My dad just kept on coming back to, you know, he's a tough negotiator. And um, I think my dad really appreciated the fact that he um, was, you know, a quote-unquote strong character. Mark was also an avid viewer of Fox News. Morning, noon, and night, I would come home and Fox was always on the the TV. Um, And that's the way it had been for quite some time. Up until this point, Mark and his wife had been very careful to avoid catching COVID-19. My parents were social distancing, wearing masks, and believing um, that it was a good idea for us to slow down the economy in order to contain the spread. But once Trump and the local governor said it was time to open up, he went out. I know he went up and um, met up with some friends to do a karaoke night. Um, He also went to a friend's birthday party. Kristen, on the phone from California, begged her father to stay home. And his response to me was, well, Kristen, I hear what you're saying, but why would the governor, why would the president say it's safe if it's not safe? I mean, Arizona, within a couple of weeks of reopening, uh, saw the largest spike in cases in the entire country. It soon became the hot spot, not only in the entire country, but the entire world. In my childhood neighborhood, where my dad was still living, where my mom lives, um, had the highest number of cases per capita, um, including my dad. Mark was hospitalised. By that stage, the local hospital was almost at capacity. Kristen could only talk to him on the phone. So we always talked about politics, and I, of course, um, was asking him the same question. What do you think of the president now, Dad? And his response, he was quiet for a second. And then he responded back, I feel sideswiped. I feel betrayed. And my heart broke for him because you never want to see somebody that you love disappointed in somebody they love. That was during the first week of her father's infection. He was convinced he was on the mend, but like so many others, he took a turn for the worst. Kristen didn't make it home to Phoenix in time. 
I was at a gas station in the middle of nowhere when I found out. My heart dropped and um, I got out of the car with my partner and just sat on the side of the road crying. Um, I just kept thinking to myself, he didn't deserve this. It should not have happened. He died at the end of June. In the second half of the year, Donald Trump has thrashed wildly from thought to thought about how the virus can be defeated. He's worn masks, but he's also said that he's not sure if masks work. He's held large events. He says a vaccine is coming any day now. He's also started stuffing his administration full of yes-men and appointing to senior positions conspiracy theorists who think government scientists are letting the pandemic get worse to damage Trump. There are scientists who work for this government, who do not want America to get well. Not until after Joe Biden is is president. It's a fact. They are sacrificing lives in order to defeat Donald Trump. He's sick of hearing from people like Fauci. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots. Every time he goes on television, there's always a bomb. But there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. But Fauci's a disaster. I mean, this guy, if I listened to him, we'd have 500,000 deaths. In 2020, COVID-19 will be the third greatest cause of death in America, after cancer and heart disease. Last week, the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, admitted that they had given up trying to stop the spread of the virus. We're not going to control the pandemic. Why aren't we going to get control of the because, pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus. There's a temptation to see the disaster of the American response as a series of unconnected failures or a surprise that it just came out of nowhere. But the reality is that Trump's approach to the US government has made the country incredibly vulnerable to disaster. Donald Trump has never been interested in listening to the experts that work in the US government. From the very moment he was elected, he and his team showed no interest in learning how best to work with the immense expertise those people bring. They were only interested in making sure those people shut up and didn't challenge the president's worldview. The the idea was just to paralyze, intimidate, frighten anybody who might be dealing with those problems. See, the US government has thousands of people, like Tony Fauci, whose job it is to protect Americans from things, or warn them that something bad is coming. Plane crashes, climate disaster, nuclear accidents, a poisoned food supply, hurricanes and tornadoes. It just happened to be a global pandemic. But it happened under a president uninterested in leading Americans through it. This is a country that was willing to go to war with itself to defeat slavery. This is a country that defeated Germany and Japan by manufacturing more military equipment than anyone thought possible. We shall produce 60,000 planes. This is a country that decided less than 60 years after the invention of the first aeroplane that they would strap three men to a rocket and fly them to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This is a country that stared down the Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is a country that has known greatness. In 2016, it elected a president 
who promised to restore that. We will make America great again. Thank you. During his time in office, Donald Trump has kept the country out of war, kept the economy growing, cut taxes, and delivered big wins for his supporters when it comes to judicial appointments. But when his country was hit by a once-in-a-century crisis, it couldn't produce tests for a virus in time to stop it spreading across the whole country unchecked. The virus will not have a chance against us. It couldn't convince people to just wear a mask to save their fellow citizens. And the president not only failed to protect Americans from the virus, he couldn't even keep himself from being infected. Donald Trump is right. America needs someone to make it great again. Terrible management of this deadly virus has brought it to its knees. The true measure of its greatness will be how it pulls itself out of the worst crisis in generations. The question is whether Donald Trump is the right man to lead it as it tries. America, If You're Listening is written by me, Matt Bevan, and produced by Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Our managing editor is Tanya Nolan. The podcast has also been made possible by our test audience, Katie Cassidy, my family, and my wife, Rachel, who I can't thank enough for her support. She has had to do without me for many, many nights as I wrote and rewrote each episode. And thank you so much for supporting this podcast over the last three years as well. This season is the culmination of four years' work for me and the great support we've got from you, sharing it among your family and friends, has made it our most successful series so far. We hope to be back in 2021. Thanks for listening. Listener.